listening to Thank You Five, a podcast devoted to Omaha's vibrant performing arts scene. My name is Dana Schweiger, and I've worked in Omaha theater for over 25 years. I'm sitting down with directors, performers, musicians, technicians, and designers to discuss their artistic talent, their passion, and why they continue to call Omaha home. Ellen Struve is an Omaha-based playwright. Her plays have been produced in several states. Her play, Prince Max's Truly Awful Trip to the Desolate Interior, was selected for the 2015 Playpen Playwrights Conference, presented at the Great Plains Theatre Conference Playfest at Jocelyn Art Museum, and it had its premiere at Red Theatre in Chicago, Illinois in 2017. Her play, Recommended Reading for Girls, which premiered at the Omaha Community Playhouse, was an O'Neill National Playwrights Conference semifinalist. She is a Nebraska Arts Council Individual Artist Fellow, Y Arts Resident Artist, Omaha Creative Institute Peer Facilitator, and Bema Center for the Arts Community Artist. She serves on the board of the Shelter Belt Theater. And in 2017, she became Creighton University's first ever playwright in residence, developing her play, The Dairy Maid Right. She co-taught theater for social justice. She has degrees from the University of Iowa and School of the Art Institute of Chicago. Ellen Struve, <laughs> welcome to the Green Room. Hello, Dana. Hello, Dana. It's lovely to be in your, in your Green Room. Oh, uh, thanks. So as any good playwright, as you well know, all stories must have a very good beginning. So we'll call this Act I'm One. I'm not a very good playwright, so we can just start wherever. Where are you from originally? Born and raised. I'm on Nebraska. Yep. And where Prairie you Lane. Prairie Lane. Ah, off of 120th. Mm-hmm. You bet. Go. Right down the hill from Mary Queen. I used to work there. Yep. <laughs> so where did you go to grade school? Prairie Lane. Prairie Lane. And then high school? Uh, Westside High. Westside. You know, a lot of kids over in that area go to Westside. Do you have family that's here in town? My parents recently moved back. They had been in Colorado when we moved back. We moved back 2003 from Chicago. My husband was transferred to my hometown. <laughs> well, <laughs> surprise! <laughs> the devil you know. Do you have any uh, brothers and sisters? I do. I have an older sister and she lives in Ohio. When you were when you were in grade school, mm-hmm. was theater on your radar at all? Yes, but not in a live way. So I believe that there was a show on PBS that filmed plays on the stage as opposed to being, you know, a, a telesplay or a telescreening of plays. And I was a little bit obsessed with that show. And I would try to watch that and also musicals and that kind of stuff. And so um, in in a PBS way, it was on my radar. And then, I mean, my mother taught dramatic arts. She was an eighth grade English teacher. But like she taught dramatic arts, but she never directed a play at the middle school because like that would be too much work. And... And really, she's she's a little lit person and a history person, and you know, uh, you know, dramatic arts was an an elective that she felt she could teach, and it wouldn't add on to grading homework for her. 
I like your mom already. Yeah, that was that was her, her motivation to get into theater. Did you expand on that in high school? Were you involved in any plays or? I was in exactly one play, one one act play at Westside High School for competition only. I played a trans student in Runaways. People might be familiar. It's a classic piece. And that was the beginning and the end of my acting career. (laughs) I also auditioned to read stage directions for a reading at Omaha Community Playhouse. And Amy Lane sent me a rejection notice saying... Ha ha, no thank you. <laughs> Actually, it did say that because we're <laughs> such good friends. She, I guess, felt comfortable Enough saying to... and it was the only role that I had ever wanted. I thought I would read stage directions in Sarah Rule's Passion Play and then I would like get to be Sarah Rule if I read her stage directions. But ha ha, apparently I mumble. <laughs> I'll keep that in mind. Listen for it, listeners. Yeah, listen for the mumble. Listen for the mumble. It's my signature mumble. <laughs> it's your signature mumble. Everybody's got a signature something. Yours is a signature mumble. You graduated from Westside, and then you went to the University of Iowa? I went to music school. I did a year at DePaul School of Music. I, w- I had been very, very serious about flute in high school. And um, you don't have to mumble when you play the flute? No, I don't have to mumble when I play the flute, but I had been very, very serious, but not serious enough to be very good. And I discovered that my first year at music school was that I was perhaps, I walked into ear training and Dr. Tosky, who's this like fabulous Russian theory and ear training professor said, you know, oh, who can tell me what, what note the lawnmower outside is, is at? And I thought, oh, I am in deep, deep. <laughs> deep trouble. And, and truly, um, another reason why I don't go on stage, my performance anxiety became so intense that I was like, I'm either going to have to leave performing or, you know, I tried a lot of stuff. Like I read, you know, Dr. Susan Jeffers, feel the fear and do it anyway. I was like trying to meditate. I was doing whiskey shots before I went on stage to play. It was not helping. And I thought, you know what might work? Not doing this anymore. And I fortunately had a teacher, my English teacher at DePaul had taken me aside at one point during the year. And I I always kind of knew, like I'd always had a lot of positive feedback for my creative writing. And she sort of pulled me aside during the year and said, you know, you can always write. You can write. And I transferred to University of Iowa. And then did you get into the creative writing program there or was it playwriting? I I did do a creative writing program there. It actually was, I did creative nonfiction workshop at University of Iowa, which is sort of more essay based. But I took two playwriting courses. I've always been what I call theater curious. <laughs> so I'm, I was I was sneaking across the river into the theater building to take these playwriting classes, but saying I'm really an English major. I'm not really a theater person, but I just want to be here. I don't know why. I just I've always been theater curious, and so I did take two playwriting courses there. One by Keith Huff, who wrote *A Steady Rain*, and one by Rick Cleveland, who I believe is an executive 
producer or whatever of like BoJack Horseman and a bunch of stuff. What year did you graduate from Iowa? 96. Yes. And then did you go to... <laughs> it was... It was in the last century. <laughs> it, was, it, was, it was a different time. And then did you go to the School of the Arts in Chicago right after that? Yeah. I, I, um, I spent a lot of time my senior year lying to my parents and saying things like, I'm going into publishing because I had no idea what I was going to do. But I did know that I loved the city of Chicago from the year that I'd spent there at DePaul. And I just wanted to get back to the city. And then I got to the city... I didn't know what the hell I was going to do because I just had a lit major. And I sent my resume to every arts organization in the city. And very fortunately for me, Greg Struve, no relation, was, <laughs> wow. was head of security at the Art Institute of Chicago. And I got a gig as the school of the Art Institute switchboard operator back when there were such things in the last century, in the last days of switchboard operating, I had my shot. And they gave me an interview, and I got this very, very non-lucrative gig. <laughs> Being the voice of the School Art in- of the Art Institute of Chicago. So if you'd like to know the hours for the School of the Art Institute of Chicago, they are 8.30 to 4.30, Monday through Friday. And I will be happy to return your call. Very nice. Yeah. So and, and tuition remission was there in their arts administration program. And I had worked at Hancher Auditorium in the box office in college at Iowa. And I had been, you know, I'd been really serious about music and I took visual arts as well in college. And so I just wanted to be around the arts, period. And so I went into arts administration because it, it, it turned out to be an actually a really good fit for me at the time. How many years was the program? Well, I worked full-time and I went to school full-time, so it wound up being about three years. So I kind of lived there. Yeah. <laughs> so you graduated from School of the Arts mm-hmm. with an administrative degree. Yeah. What did you do after graduation? Because you, cause, So you graduated, would have been late 90s. Mm-hmm. 99, 2000 mm-hmm. in there, yeah. Yeah, 99, I think is what my diploma says. 2000, I really finished up that thesis. But yeah, no, they let me walk. Yeah. <laughs> you gra- so you graduate, and then did you get into arts administration right away? Absolutely. I went to go work for an organization called Merritt School of Music, which is a tuition-free conservatory. And it was my dream job. It was my dream gig. It was a school that provided free music instruction to kids throughout Chicago, regardless of their ability to pay. And so I did. So they provided the instruments? They and provided They provided the instruments. They provided private instruction. They provided. And then at the, at the top tier of their program, it was by audition only. And it was open to everyone. And it was free to everyone. And so, you know, I worked at Merit until I had my, my daughter. And I was, I did fundraising there. I raised about a million dollars a year in foundation, corporate, and government grants. Well, you mentioned your daughter. So we'll take a moment then to talk about. Your husband and where you <laughs> and where you met him. He's the best. He is the best. I've met him. You know, he's a sweetheart. I met him. He dated my best friend at DePaul. <laughs> but let's just like give me the benefit of the doubt and here I'm for just a gonna, moment. And I'm just going to stop and interrupt to say right now Ellen is wearing a shirt. 
<laughs> that says no drama and llama. it has a llama on it. So but no, I drama, am a no llama, drama llama stole her best no, friend's nope, nope, boyfriend. Nope, 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 nope. He dated my best friend at DePaul, then I transferred schools. My friend at DePaul also wound up transferring schools and they broke up. And then when I moved back to Chicago, I went to the bar at the end of my street <laughs> for Thursday night free taco buffet because I was making so much money as the switchboard operator at the School of the Art Institute that my friend and I had knocked and tried to like work out this system of trying to get free dinner at various bar buffets throughout the city. <laughs> also, at that point in time, you could get a stale bagel and a cup of soup for lunch at the Under 55 Cafe for $1.50. That was my go-to <laughs> lunch during that period of time as well. Also, I had a strict rule about never buying fruit that cost more than 99 cents a pound. So there's a lot of like bananas and green apples in my life. But yeah, so, so we went down for Taco Thursday night at the Burwood Tap and I saw this like really cute guy and I'm like, oh. Hey, I think I know him. <laughs> and in fact, I did. He was a jazz studies major at DePaul and he worked. He was a full-time jazz musician at Navy Pier in the Navy Pier Quartet at that period of time. So he, uh, he was super smooth and he gave me his card, which said saxophone player on it. <laughs> which only works for a very specific demographic, and that demographic is me. Kenny G, send me your... <laughs> send me your oh my gosh, card. no, honey. Not Kenny G. He's so not Kenny G. So not. He's such a straight-ahead guy. It's, it's not... He's, 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 he's all about the real jazz. He's real jazz. There you he's, go. he's not smooth at all. He's not... As that giving me of all. his card would infer. <laughs> not smooth. Not smooth. So you guys get married. Yep. You have your first child together. Yep. And then you decide to move back to Omaha because... His job says, hey, you could either have this new baby and no job in Chicago, or you could have a job in Omaha, Nebraska. And we were like, oh, we should have a job. So you return to Omaha, Nebraska. What yeah. year? 2003. 2003. And what do you do when you come back? Despair. No. <laughs> just you for a little bit. Arts. Just for a little bit. Just for a little bit. You have So you have your arts administration degree and you come back. Uh, I come back. Um, I'm freelancing a little bit. I did some freelance work for organizations I'd worked in, for in Chicago. You know, then I do, you know, what you do when you move to Omaha. I got pregnant again and I... <laughs> another baby that's pretty pretty busy and um so i have my son eddie and, and then um great plains theater conference came along i think the first time i met you was when you wrote mrs jennings mm -hmm. sitter and mountain lion well okay so the theater conference opened almost around the same time right around the same time that i moved like i don't know how long that how long has it been going on so it wasn't too long after i had my son maybe uh, Maybe he was an infant. And so I went to the first year of the Great Plains Theater Conference because I was like, oh, my God. Okay, so you hadn't, you hadn't submitted anything. Oh, you no, just, no. You were and just I'd going been, to like, the conference. I'd been, like, secretly writing, you know what I mean? Just, like, for my own private, very, very private 
use. Um, and I was like, Edward Albee is giving a theater conference in Omaha, Nebraska. And I'd like tell everybody I knew and they'd be like, oh, that's amazing. Who's Edward Albee? <laughs> and, <laughs> and so I went and it was really, it was really, I was, um, I paid. I was like the only person in the history of the earth of the world to pay to attend the conference on like a day rate. And I, I went to go see the work during the day and um, there was a there was a play by a gentleman who had like what I what I thought was a pretty impressive resume. That was a pretty terrible play, Dana. I thought to myself, man, well, I can do that. <laughs> and so it was very inspiring to me. I was like, oh, <laughs> if, if that's. <laughs> If that's, if that's what the standard, if that's the standard, I'm I'm feeling like maybe, and I feel like this is the service that I provide, right? Like I, I write a play, and then people come and they're like, "Oh, I can do that," and it's true, it's true, they can, <laughs> they can. So your first play, what was the first play you wrote then? First play I wrote, I mean Jennings was my first like chunk. You know, I t- I went okay, so. In college, I had been obsessed with Six Degrees of Separation. Um, it's still a play that really moves me and I find really fascinating. And so um, when John... Guar. John Guar. But anyway, when when there was a like an article in the paper that he was going to come here and that he was going to give a seminar for, on playwriting for professionals in town. And I was like, I have to do this and I was super nervous and I called up Metro and I'm like I thought oh if only I can get in I don't know if I'll be able to get in surely every theater professional in town will be taking this workshop because they'll be like right you know like and and I, I signed up for Scott Working's playwriting class at Metro because you had to sign up for the playwriting class to take John Guar's workshop, which then he wound up not really teaching. It was just like an afternoon talk about his plays. <laughs> but the workshop was Scott Working was really, really wonderful. And I was, you know, I, I had gotten back in touch with writing in a more serious way. So you wrote Mrs. Jennings Sitter. Mm-hmm. That was your first one. One act. Mm-hmm. And Mountain Lion right after that? Mountain Lion right after that. Like Jennings is a two-hander. And so when I started writing again after college, because I'd, I'd written a fair amount in college, I sort of promised myself that I would just finish everything I started. And so I started with a two-hander because I wanted to just, I felt like that was like the most manageable place to start. And then I went to three. And then... I did a series of monologues. Um, Nobody gets paid. And we produced it as like a jazz festival because who who doesn't want to go to a late night jazz theater festival in Omaha? Oh, that's right. Everyone doesn't want to do that, Dana. (laughs) (laughs) But I have maybe some of my most favorite, fondest memories of sitting in the shelter belt at like 1.15 a.m. Well, this show wraps up because we did it as a late night and like sometimes just the band would be there at the end watching the actors and they, but but you know what 
watching the guys in the band laugh at that show was one of my was one of my favorite experiences <laughs> ever because like that's real jazz dana it's one o'clock nobody's there that's when the real jazz happens <laughs> <laughs> So after nobody gets paid, yeah. Then was it recommended reading for girls? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now you had met Amy Lane before that. You met her during Mountain Lion. Yeah. And Mrs. Yeah. Jennings Sitter. Sitter. Yeah. Because you and Amy have worked a lot together. She has directed yeah. a lot of your shows. Yeah. yeah she, she gets has. you. <laughs> she is. She is my theater sister. She's so much. She's actually a lot like my sister. <laughs> And she is definitely my my theater soulmate. So talk to me about recommended reading for girls. Okay, so after Jennings and Mountain Lion, and I, I probably already drafted Nobody Gets Paid at that point, I was kind of exhausted, but I also, I knew that I wanted to do a full length, but I was kind of exhausted. And I thought, oh, I should write a full length that could never be done. <laughs> Right. I should write. Um, it's got like seven roles for women. There's a kid who only speaks German. A staircase, a giant set, giant ginormous set. I should. I'm like that'll never get produ- produced. And you know, I had I had two small children. Was, you know, I love production, but it does exhaust me, just because I always have to like retreat to my hole. And. But yeah, I, I was like, oh, I want to be free. I want to be free from any expectation whatsoever. It, it didn't turn out that way. It turned out to be a, a, a really well-received and produced show. I thought, I thought nobody would ever be interested in it. So you wrote the play. Yeah. And I'm assuming had table reads here and workshopped oh. it and up the... Like 90 wazoo. million people had read in, in that play by the time it was over, like... Andrew Yoland read Nancy Drew, or not Nancy Drew, Penny Parker, you know, Scott Working read Heidi a bunch. You know, there was a playwrights group at the time that that was developed through. And it took me a long time, you know, to try to figure out how a full length works was really challenging for me. And it just, it took a long time. How did it end up getting produced by the Playhouse? Uh, Susie Bear Collins came to the reading at Great Plains Theater Conference. And she took it to the reading committee immediately. For those people who haven't seen it, can you tell us a little bit about the show? It is a play about a a woman who comes home to help her mom through a round of chemo. And when she comes home, she notices some things are a little strange in the house. And what is strange in the house is that these storybook characters, and they are all female heroines of sort of famous novels, have sort of come to life and come to live in her mother's home. And so she and her sister, who's very pregnant, have to deal with both their mother and the the differences that they have with their mom about how their mom is treating her her cancer. Her mom their mom has a recurrence of cancer at this point. And also the the legacy and the for lack of a better word, reality of these storybook heroines being in their childhood home. Um, and a lot of the play is about what is expected of us as girls, as daughters, and and um, as heroines. What year was recommended reading? 2013. 
maybe maybe 2011 mm. but yeah but I mean everything takes so long you know like maybe it was at Great Plains in 2011 sure and then and then you've got the rewrites and, then, and you've got the then, feedback you know like reading committees take a long time yep. I think that's about right it was an O'Neill National Playwrights Conference semifinalist you yep. were tell me about what that is and what that means so the O'Neill is sort of a clearinghouse for new work, and they get about a thousand submissions every year. And there's two kind of rounds, and it goes through two readers. And so maybe um, 200 plays wind up as semifinalists, and 75 wind up as finalists. Laura Campbell's Eminent Domain was a finalist because she rocks. Bofield Berry's in the upper room is a finalist as well. So it's just sort of this you can submit your play. You have to pay a fee to have readers. Um, but it's a, a place where you can submit work and then you, you get this kind of feedback, I guess, about like the way readers work. I think it's a pretty big deal. I mean, it's a pretty big deal. You know, it's funny. It's named after like Eugene O'Neill. It's know, big. It's a big yeah, deal. Yeah. But you, um, I've written like a bunch of plays now and I've been on reading committee for Great Plains Theater Conference, which I would recommend to anyone who is serious about writing to try to, to try to be on, on reading committees. Because what you understand is that anytime any play is chosen for anything, it is something like a miracle, right? Like stars align. You get the right reader. Your play is the right play for the right reader at the right time. You know, I really, you know, Prince Max goes to Philly. You know, I spent three weeks in Philadelphia with Prince Max. You know, Prince Max didn't get a bite from the O'Neill, Right. And then it's chosen as one of one of six from like seven hundred or fifty or eight hundred or whatever to go to playpen, and so I'm a little like I'm always you know that that things get chosen for things is amazing to me that anything ever gets chosen that anything ever gets chosen for a season. By a, by a theater company is amazing because of everything that has to align to make that happen. And you just, you gotta, you just gotta be grateful when those things align for you. Tell me a little bit about Prince Max. <laughs> Prince Max is another like, like, well, now I wanted, actually this is a jazz phrase. I wanted to write well, I, I called I told my husband that I wanted to write out, which is like um, when you play out in jazz, when you're improvising out, you're you're using notes outside of the scale in your improvisation. And so it's a little dissonant. And I just wanted to write weird, I guess. And I thought I, again, I was like, oh, I want to write something like small and manageable and weird like something that would be like I could pro- I could like self produce it in like a basement, and I didn't. I also wanted to take on some really big topics. I don't know, bigger than like death and motherhood. I don't know. 
which I just done for recommended reading. No, um, no, I wanted to I wanted to get a little political. And I was just fascinated with it. I was just fascinated with it, you know, because I grew up here. I grew up walking through Jocelyn and I could not have been more turned off as a child by that. Um, there's there's an, an, an oppressiveness to to Western art, right? But then I was there just wandering around the museum one day and they had Max's journals out. And it, it was about them like loading these bears in cages onto the boats. And um, it's, fall, it's fall, it's gonna be winter on the Missouri and, and you know, northern parts of in the Dakotas. And I thought, God, these people are nuts. They're so nuts. I wanna write a play about them. Then we had Untitled Series Number 7. Yeah. Well, I went to art school, and I just wanted to have fun. Tell us what that is about. Okay, that's a comedy about divorce. I mean, it's a romantic comedy, really, essentially. It's a, um, these two visual artists are divorced and unhappily stuck together, still living in the same loft artist studio that they have been and so she gets a gig somewhere else and he decides to pretend that she has she's died and he's sort of a de facto widow or sort of and it's really just it's a it's a straight up comedy about like middle age and marriage and divorce and like you turn 40 and all of your friends get divorced <laughs> and I just wanted I wanted to have fun and and I think I also wanted to write a play where some of my friends who who were going through tough times that way got to be healed you know what I mean like I wanted to write a romantic comedy where everything works out in the end how long does it normally take you to write a play. And we'll start with, we'll say, well, let's start with a first draft. I mean, if it's something that you can sit down and kind of vomit it out and then go back and edit it like crazy, or does it take a while for you to germinate the idea? You know, does it depend on what you're writing? The thing, you know, I say, I say all the time, like, plays are jerks. <laughs> it's like my favorite phrase. I'm like, plays are jerks jerks this jerk play and the thing about them is they're it's different every damn time right like you never you never feel like you know what you're doing you never feel like you've figured stuff out some plays are easier and some plays are harder and my husband would say that I complain bitterly about them all. <laughs> I love them all. But yeah, it just works differently every time. Untitled series number seven is the fastest play I've ever written, um, but probably the longest idea I'd ever had. Right. And some plays you just got to go into blind and you figure them out as you go along. 
and it takes years. And I and I and I generally I would say a a play takes me three years from page to stage, from idea through page. I've been really fortunate to get most things to stage. I have one. I have one that didn't make it. The Dairy Made Right. Where did the idea germinate? It was an idea I'd had in a long time in my head. And sometimes ideas are, you know, my, when my folks lived in Estes Park, Colorado, I drove 80 a lot to go out there. And there's a, like a Dairy Queen off, off of, I think, one of the exchanges around Ogallala. And so I'd always sort of had in my head the idea of this place, right? That is sort of an iconic American place that is undergoing transition. And and this sort of idea of what happens when a stranger enters. But it wasn't until the child migration started happening in 20... I guess it's 2014, that I um, I couldn't get it out of my head. And that play really started sort of banging on my door. For those who haven't seen it, what is The Dairy Made Right about? Uh, the Dairy Made Right is a play about immigration set in central Nebraska. And it is what happens when the two 18-year-old new citizens, um, David Vega and Courtney Blue Jenner, encounter a child migrant from Guatemala and have to decide how to confront their feelings about immigration, their family, the way that immigration affects both of their families, and sort of decide what it what it means to be American. Can you talk a little bit about your collaboration with Creighton University in regards yeah. to the play? You know, I was very fortunate, you know, because I am close with Amy. I had her over to read the first act um, and we sat at my kitchen table and read it to each other and she, she said this is a great because you know because the protagonists are 18 she's like oh this is this would be great to talk about at the college level this would be a great play to talk about at the college level and I was struggling with you know I was struggling with the play I was I wanted more resource on that play because the political environment was changing so quickly because things that were happening around that play felt important to get right. I, I wanted to have a chance to do more research and to do a little bit wider kind of development process than I had previously. And so we, we wrote a grant to Creighton's Global Initiative for me to come in and develop the play in the course there. And I finished the play along with the input of like really amazing students in Creighton. And we sort of took it on, you know, part of the class was working with social justice techniques like Augusto Boal and Bertolt Brecht, which was super fun to engage with. And then the other part was developing a new work. You had some stage readings at Creighton. Yep. And then uh, you had it produced at the Shelterbell Theater. You bet. 
It's like my home theater. The Shutterbell Theater is an incubator theater for new works. How much did the play develop between its time at Creighton to when it was produced at the Shelter Belt. And there are actually some Creighton students who actually ended up in the play as well. Oh, you bet. Well, I know from the first reading we had, we had a reading at, at Blue Barn, and I changed the ending there. <laughs> Between that one and the next reading we had at Creighton, like the next week. And and then I went back and I did a little more work on the play. It wasn't it wasn't terribly different, but I I mean if 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 I have the chance, I will make changes. That's my that's my that's my opportunity. If at a certain point Amy will always kick me out of rehearsals and be like, Your chances are done. You may no longer make changes. My dream, Dana, someday. Like an out of town preview. What kind of like gorgeous fantasy land of the last century is that? Because you know you don't you don't know what you have until you see it up. And you don't know what you have until your actors are memorized. One of the neatest thing, yes, and a full a fully mounted production is awesome, but the first time you hear actors read your words is probably one of the most exciting times. And then you sit there and you go, "Wow, I made that." <laughs> They make it sound really good. <laughs> Let's spend a little bit of time talking about about the Shelterbelt Theater. Oh yeah, and Shelterbelt's mission, and the fact that you know right now Shelterbelt is kind of in limbo because they lost their space. But the Shelterbelt Theater, for for those who don't know, as I mentioned, was the the home for new works. Other theaters, yes, have done. New works. The Playhouse did, you know, the Playhouse did recommended reading. And you've got a play that's coming up, a stage reading at the Blue Barn that we'll talk about in a couple minutes. But Shelterbelt is, their mission is new works. Local original, baby. By local. Yeah. By local. By local. Take a moment as a playwright to talk about the importance of having a theater in town where you can have your works produced. Ugh. You know, we've we've developed this incredibly rich playwriting community that you are a part of. You know, there's just so many voices in town that I really value hearing Laura Campbell, Marie Shoot, Marie Shoot, Bofield Berry, Joe Baskey, you, you know, Colleen O'Doherty's, you know, coming around and and you know Jen Dawson's in town now and I just we're so fortunate for a community our size. Oh, Noah, Noah Diaz is no longer with us, but That's with right. us he's in making our hearts, his way. He's making in our his hearts, way. He's Yale. with us in his heart. And and that just couldn't have been possible without a place for people to see their work on stage. And Shelterbelt has been, and I and I say has been because it'll come back. Shelterbelt has been around Omaha for 25 years. Scott Working, who, uh, you know, is one of the the heads of the Great Plains Theater Mm -hmm. Conference, along with Kevin Lawler uh, from down at the Blue Barn. They're the ones that that run Great Plains. And Scott was a founding member. Oh, absolutely. And Scott's still making new playwrights out there at Metro, teaching playwriting and getting people invested in it. So it's extremely, extremely important to have a venue where playwrights can feel safe, 
feel comfortable. Mm -hmm. That is the point of a shelter belt is to make you feel safe. And a place where you can take risks. I I think, you know, I'm, I'm... nobody else would have said yes to be like yes yes let's have a late night jazz festival play with a set and nine monologues ellen that's a what a genius idea you have there Um, that's where the real jazz happens that's, that's right that's right but i yeah i can't i can't say how important it is to give people the chance to take risks and to see that there is a possibility. You know, I I would never have taken Mrs. Jennings to, you know, to the Playhouse or Blue Barn and said, hey, would you think about producing this? I just wouldn't have, it wouldn't have ever have occurred to me to do that, you know? And to have a place to aspire to that way, especially when you're starting you know, when you've never had a production before, it's so important to our community. And and that it's not just readings, because there is something deeply different about a production versus a reading. The production is the form. That is theater. Reading is a step. And Shelter Bell's really good because they can workshop it. Oh, yeah. And, and two, you know, they've got... Fabulous audiences. I'm always like, those audiences, God, talk about your diehards, right? You know what I mean? Like nobody comes to the shelter belt to be safe. It's just not, you don't go to say like, oh, I want to know exactly what I'm going to get. And I want to know exactly what it's going to taste like. And I want to know exactly the consistency. And I want to know exactly what this is. You know, like that kind of audience, that kind of audience that is willing to go along with you. That's my favorite. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm in. You have a show or a, a stage reading one night coming up at the Blue Barn. Mm-hmm. Tell me a little bit about that. Sure. That is the octopus play. And it is kind of an octopus play for me right now. <laughs> I guess I'm still writing it. <laughs> uh, but we were very fortunate to get an Alfred P. Sloan grant to, to do this process. So that's been fabulous to have that support. But it is about science funding in the U.S. and it is also about a naturalist, a female naturalist in the 1800s. And so I really missed my research that I was doing on Prince Max and so I decided to do more research (laughs) and I fell in love with Jean Fia Prupower. She was just her name. She was she invented the aquarium. She had this fabulous life story of she was a seamstress. She was, you know, she walks to Paris. She becomes a seamstress. She sews a wedding dress for a princess. She meets a rich man at the wedding. She reinvents herself and becomes a scientist. And she studies paper nautiluses, which are a kind of octopus, which makes a shell. And so I also got really interested in octopuses <laughs> and we were the, are just like these deeply fascinating creatures and because I have a, a background in fundraising and I'd been reading a lot of articles about problems in science funding and some where are we in our environment as scientists in the U.S. and what's happening with that I decided to sort of mesh all of those things together into a play I guess <laughs> we'll find out if it's a play <laughs> sooner or later 
<laughs> How many years are you into it? <laughs> you like, said I'm it takes two. you about three I'm two. years. I'm two. I've been two. Yeah, at least. I'm at least two years into okay. Octopus Play. Oh, maybe. Oh, I'd hate to look at the date on the original. <laughs> the original. Uh, timestamp on that one but I did get to go to University of Chicago I got to go to the research lab there where they mapped octopus DNA and I got to see an octopus emerge from its egg right for my very eyes under the microscope they're fascinating creatures under the microscope and I talked to the researchers there about that and so it's been I mean I got to touch a giant pacific octopus at the zoo Sherry Fletcher's my hero. She <laughs> took me to meet this biologist at the zoo to ask some questions. And as he was talking to me, I could tell that something else might happen if I passed <laughs> if I passed the test talking to the marine biologist. And then he was like, would you like to come back here? And I was like, yes, it's happening. It's happening. And Sherry and I went back and the giant octopus like reached up and wrapped its tentacle around us and like came home with like perfectly spherical hickeys all over my forearm. <laughs> It was so awesome. I've been touched by an octopus. Heyo. <laughs> so that's been cool. Those are the days where you're like, oh, this is the best. Being a playwright is, is the best possible day. But no, there's no other way that I can have this weird experience than being a playwright. Those, those days are my favorite days. Dear diary. <laughs> Dear diary. Today. Today. I was touched by an octopus. I was touched by an octopus. He left his little spherical hickeys all over me. Yeah. In addition to the octopus play, you have another play that's coming up this summer at the Great Plains Theater Conference. Let's talk about that. This will have a full production, and I'm working with Michael Garces from Cornerstone Theater in Los Angeles will come out to direct, and Lynn Jeffries will be, we're bringing in a puppeteer as well, and I've always wanted to work with a puppeteer, and so that is also a dream come true. And this has been a project a couple years in the making as well, um, and it's called Epic or Epic Epico, and it is a commission from Great Plains as part of their tapestries project based in South Omaha. And because I have a, a background in art, I wanted to include to celebrate the many visual artists in South Omaha. And so I started off investigating murals and um, the South Omaha mural project that Richard Harrison began. And I also, through the Dairy Maid Right, I had made friends and become pretty invested in Comunidad Maya Pishanishi, which is an organization for Mayan people living in Omaha. And so I talked to Luis Marcos, who's the head of that program, and I talked to a collective of young visual artists who make up abstract minds, and they're young visual artists, most of whom are based in South Omaha. And so the way Cornerstone builds plays is totally different than any way I've ever built a play before, is they build them out of story circles. And so you have story circles where you talk to people about what's important to them, what are their communities' concerns, those kinds of things, and then you build a play from it. And so at some point, Luis Marcos had asked for an adaptation of the Bobo Wu, which is an epic poem, much like the Odyssey and a collection of stories, much like the Book of the Dead, or, you know, Bible stories of the Mayans goes back to 300 BC. And I said, okay. <laughs> and so it is a braiding of these communities. So it's the story both of a group of contemporary artists who are young and have sort of 
you know, those sort of artist problems of coming into one's own, of working in a group. You know, we work in theater. We know the collaboration is easy. (laughs) Oh, yes. Yes, yes. We know, you know how easy it is to be a collective and issues as they're, they are making a mural of the bubble. And so the play will tell the, the stories, the myth, the, and I, I hesitate to say myth, right? Like, because you wouldn't say, you know, Bible myths, you would say, because it is a sacred book of the Mayan people, the stories of the Popo in shadow, I believe is how we're going to handle it. <laughs> While you see the, the lives of the artists making the mural and how those stories inform one another. Because the, the thing about working with them, and I, I believe truly that Popovu is a great piece of literature. You know, the deeper I've gone into it, the the more in love I've become with it. It's, and it's just fabulous, fabulous material. And it's so deep and so beautiful. You know, you see how this how these stories about life from, you know, thousands of years ago still speak to the current moment, still speak to us today and in, in the lives of, of these artists. And so it's going to be a play um, because Derry Maidwright had a scene in Spanish and I was like, oh, I should, I should up my game. I should, I should, I should, I should write a play in two languages that I don't, that I don't speak fluently. So I've spent the last mm, more than six months taking um, Kahoba lessons. And I've been very, very fortunate to work with a translator there, Lucia Francisco and Mariana Arena have been working with me and teaching me Kahoba. Um, so watch me a cool. And that has been, I think, one of the most rewarding experiences I've ever had as a playwright because the, the Mayan community in Omaha, you know, there was a genocide in Maya, in, 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 Guatemala, where many of the people are from in the 80s. And so every, everyone who is here, who, who I have met, has, has experienced incredible hardship, you know, but has maintained this incredible heart. You know, Pishan means heart um, in Kahobal. And the hearts that I have met through this project have been incredible. Just incredible. Um, and so I'm really, really, really excited to share more of that community with Omaha at Great Plains this year. And the artists as well, the visual artists just have like this fabulous, fabulous energy and Abstract Minds crew, you know, Tony Barrales and Ari Marquez and Sergio Gomez. Are, uh, there's there's a, a real, a real um, spirit there that I'm, I'm, I'm hoping... I can do service to. I wish you well on that. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> I know. The, the, I'm excited to see those Cajobal auditions. <laughs> it's a beautiful, beautiful language. I'm going to steal a little bit from James Lipton inside the actor's studio. Give you a couple of questions here. What quality do you most admire in a man? <laughs> Generosity. Who would you say are your favorite fictional heroines? You know, I'm a Lizzie Bennett girl, Pride Prejudice. Joe March meant a great deal to me as a child. Who would you say are your favorite characters in history? And I guess maybe characters isn't the right word, but... My favorite people in history? Yes. 
this is this is an evasive answer but i read this book called the book of ages about ben franklin's sister jane franklin who was a woman of very diminished means who struggled to um, manage her you know, her alcoholic husband and, you know, the many miscarriages and death by disease of children and the, you know, she she ran a, a boarding house to try to make money. She tried to get by. But there was a line in Jill Lepore's very fascinating book about her, which is that she never left anyone behind, Right. And so my favorite people in history are people who toil often in obscurity and never leave people behind. What natural gift would you most like to possess? I would love to be able to play the piano like Oscar Peterson. That would make me really, really happy. I would love to be able to sing really, really well. That would be good. I could do, I could do either one of those. Give it to me. Great voice, maybe more so with the piano. Who are your favorite poets? I don't read a ton of poetry. <laughs> That's okay. We don't have to answer that question. <laughs> but Keats, Keats. Okay. I, I, you know what? That I, I don't read a ton of poetry, but Keats, I, I do keep a volume of Keats by my bedside and return to it regularly. Ellen, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thank you for having me, Dana. <laughs> What's your favorite curse word? Oh, F word for sure. <laughs> I mean, like, my husband, okay, my husband did say as I left the house tonight to be like, so, you know, I don't know if you, like, I don't know how you're going to handle this, but maybe like keep it under wraps. It was kind of like the, 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 the gist of it because I do have, I do swear, like my mom was an eighth grade English teacher and so I swear like an eighth grade English teacher, right? Like, <laughs> I swear all the time. And um, I, I was cognizant of that this evening, so. Thank you for listening to the Thank You Five podcast with original theme music by Tim Vallier. For more information about tonight's guest, please visit www.thankyoufivepod.com. Be sure to head over to iTunes or Google Play to subscribe, rate, and leave a review. And remember that right now, somewhere in the world, a stage manager is saying, five minutes to curtain. Thank you, five. Thank you, five. Thank you, five. Thank you, five. Thank you, five.